Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got the Sensei Leader Effective Leadership Through Courage, Compassion, and Wisdom. And I've got Jim Bouchard with us today. So, Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, I appreciate your hospitality. Let's break out the geese, let's strap on some belts and get into this book. There we go. So, do you think this this book uh, is a good fit for leaders, even if they haven't done martial arts? You know, especially if they haven't done martial arts. Uh, you know, people that have done martial arts, and you know, you told me you, you've practiced and studied yourself. You 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 were in a black belt, uh, so you know the imprint, the philosophy that that really drives you know most most martial artists. Uh, my intention with this book was to share those ideas outside of the dojo, if you will. Uh, certainly, we get a lot of feedback from martial artists that enjoy it, uh, but it particularly resonates with folks that haven't had that experience, right? And yet, they get an insight into the philosophy that that we practiced as as black belts. So, you know, this is a compendium book or, or your second book because your first book, uh, Think Like a Black Belt. Should you read that first book first or is this a, a prequel and then you'll get more out of the, the Think Like a Black Belt book? What do you think? No, you know, I'd, I'd certainly appreciate people reading both books <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but uh, Think Like a Black Belt, I, I basically work in two tracks uh, as far as what I'm doing, you know, speaking at conferences and doing uh, business and corporate training and whatnot. And Think Like a Black Belt is reflective of the first track, which is about personal and professional mastery. Again, imprinting that philosophy to, you know, to help people reach whatever their peak level of performance might be. And then out of that, uh, actually, I should tell you a quick, quick story about how this got started. Mm-hmm. We were looking we were looking for the next project and one of the sections in Think Like a Black Belt was was about leadership and it focused on the three topics you started with courage, compassion and wisdom. And I was writing uh, I believe it was a link yeah, it was LinkedIn Pulse uh, article and put it out there. It was on compassion in leadership. And it got something in the neighborhood of 5,000 viewers in about two hours. So we knew we were onto something important. And we tested a few more articles out there and, and on my blogs and really found a, a tremendous amount of response. Now, I had known from uh, articles, a, a lot of emphasis in articles in uh, Harvard Business Review, Inc. Magazine, uh, Forbes, journals like that, that people were paying more attention uh, particularly to compassion and leadership, but to these human elements. And so we decided to take uh, that that leadership section out of Think Like a Black Belt and expand on it. So while there's some overlap, obviously this one focuses on leader, leadership for, and I'm just going to say at all levels. Uh, it doesn't matter. Position, rank, uh, you know, your position of authority, uh, your title doesn't really matter. Uh, I believe we need to develop leadership on the front lines and in our communities, you know, on the front lines as well as whether, you know, people are uh, ambitious about management or or executive uh, positions. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because one of, the, I think, the biggest failings for of organizations, you know, they, they start up and they've got this training mentality. It's like yeah, everybody has to get trained. And I just finished chatting with another author about the same thing. And really where all companies fail is the leaders, the guy at the top, basically the sensei of the company, the CEO, the, the, the guy that's guiding everybody won't retrain. He says, no, 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 it's for everybody else. I'm fine. And uh, I think with martial arts, it, when you're getting into the martial arts, it's a very humbling experience. And one of the things that blows your mind is the higher you get up, the humbler you realize the person that's training you is. Hopefully, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, No, exactly. And in every one of my presentations, I tell a story about what we call beginner's mind. You know, uh, if people go on on, uh, thatblackbeltguy.com, they'll see the the belt that I actually wear. And I don't know what style you practiced in, but my through line has been Kempo. I've had a lot lot of different experiences, but Kempo has been the through line. And uh, we come from the, well, we come from the criminal background. (laughs) We're not the the nice (laughs) guys. Street level. Right, exactly. So uh, we like to show our, our experience by the wear and tear on the belt. Well, when I earned my first black belt, when I got back, my master gave me uh, one that he had, he had bought for me uh, especially. And he said, if you continue your life in the martial arts, he said, this belt's going to change. I thought it was the most beautiful thing. I mean, deep, rich, dark black, you know, uh, 
biggest accomplishment I ever had in my life at the time. And like I said, he said, if you, if you continue, uh, that's, that's going to change. It's going to wear out. It's going to fade. It's going to fray. You're going to get dragged around the floor in it. You're going to sweat in it, bleed in it, cry in it, the whole thing, right? And it does. It frays away and the covering is exposed and it, inside it, it shows another, another core, a, a white belt. Right, and that's to remind us of that idea. You know, mastery isn't isn't a finished product, right? Mastery is the mindset that you have that you're going to continually learn, grow, and develop. And I agree with you 110 percent. The best leaders in business or in, or in politics or in the community are always those people who are continually learning and growing, embra- embracing really that idea of a beginner's mind. And you know, those that don't are they're going to fail. I mean, at some point, there's a, you know, there's some point of stress where. You just cannot maintain your position. You can't maintain a level of respect. You can't remain, maintain credibility, right, unless you're continually moving forward. And you certainly can't ask other people to learn and grow and develop unless you're willing to do it yourself, right? If you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you've touched on many, many things, and, and um, I have a couple of, of favorite senseis. Uh, one of them was uh, he was younger than me when he was training me in, in Japan. And, um, you know, he's this wiry guy, but he wasn't their top fighter. He was their uh, top stylist, and, and um, he, did, um, he did amazing kata. And basically what the kata is, is a demonstration of style for the people that don't know that. Um, and we would, I'd, I would watch the guy and say, wow, he's a really cool guy. He's this wiry little dude. But then the boss, the third Dan, 18-year-old dude that ran the club, the president of the club, because it was a high school club, he basically said, uh, you know, you got to be tougher, you got to fight, and, you know, you'd have this love-hate relationship with, but there was always this calm, gentle guy who was the same level, but in competition fighting, he would never win. He would always win with the kata, and he was kind of the most respected person in that um, group of, of, well, guys and girls uh, studying karate, and for me, that was a big life lesson. You don't have to be a big, and I don't want to use like what a macho bully about management or, or your style or how you teach people, it is, but there's two ways of doing it. You can force your learning on people, you can intimidate your learning on people, or you can uh, influence people. And he was using this influential style where he was very calm. When he ever talked to you, it was, he knew exactly what your problem was and he would fix it. Just, uh, just you know, a little two centimeters here, then you're fixed. And you go, really, that's it? Yeah, absolutely. And you, he would instill confidence. In the sensei leader, do you feel that it covers both those styles or does it, is it, do you have to have both those styles to have a great leader? Well, you're kind of touching on, uh, you know, one of the ways I found to organize these thoughts because when we're talking, uh, you know, about philosophy, uh, you know, we can we can take it to a lot of different tangents, right? So, in order to to you know provide uh, somewhat of a foundation or, or, or a you know a process for this, I came up with eight strategies that I had learned through not just through the martial arts, but throughout my life and and through my various roles as a leader. And one of them was to be tough yet compassionate, and I think that's what you're touching on. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a, a, a great fighter. You have to be a great fighter if you're going to go in the ring and compete, right, or try to make a living at it. Or if we were sending you off to war, of course, we'd have to make sure you had those skills. Um, but being tough doesn't necessarily translate you know, to that. It's the mindset that a, that a great fighter would have, right? That you're going to have the courage, you're going to have, you hit on the confidence issue, that you know you've trained and you've prepared because uh, confidence is not a surety of an outcome. That's arrogance, right? Confidence is knowing that you belong in the fight, that you've done everything you can, that you're prepared for what what you're going to face and that you're comfortable with the uncertainty, which is a huge metric uh, in assessing new leaders in in all areas of our of our society these days, but particularly in business. They want people who are comfortable with uncertainty, and that's a problem that we're addressing. But you also talked about you know the idea of of the way that that uh, gentler sensei approached things, you know. The reason that, I, that I'm so passionate about this project is because one of the most important roles of a leader, not, not a manager per se, but a leader, is to help other people grow and develop. You have to be a good mentor, coach, and teacher, and you can learn how to do that. Uh, you know, I, I believe it was a Stanford study, though, that showed that that's one of the greatest uh, deficiencies 
right? In the develop in continual leadership development these days, and you hit on that earlier, that sometimes people at the top they may be they may consider themselves too busy with other things. Uh, they may decide that they're resting on their laurels to agree, but for whatever whatever reason, uh, they're not developing their mentoring skills. And so that's a, a big gap that we're trying to fill with this idea of the sensei leader. A huge component is that we're teaching people how to teach and mentor effectively. And this is something that, that I don't think enough leaders have. Leaders have to have a leader. And a lot of <laughs> right? time, yeah. you know, yeah. you, a sensei has to have a sensei. But after a certain amount of time um, and – you know, if you're at like fifth level Dan and, and sixth level, there's only so many levels you can get. But what happens is it ceases to be about style and it becomes more about how to spread the uh, the word or build the organization or, or build that particular uh, school of thought for your style. That's yes. what it's about. And, and you're not getting tested for how well you can do a kata or how well you're a competition fighter and how many bouts that you've won. It's more about what are you doing within society to make society better. And those are the higher level teachings that you have to go through from white belt through the black belt. And when you hit black belt, that's when you start. And I think that's what really a lot of people don't get is like, yeah, I get the black belt and boom, there I am. I'll become, <laughs> right. I'll become the yeah. CEO yeah. or I'll own a company and boom, there I am. No, then you get to learn what how difficult it is to lead a group of people in an authentic, uh, true manner. And and I think that's what I love about this book is it's saying it's taking the metaphor of something that's abstract for a lot of people like karate or a martial art and saying, yeah, it's all about it's a lifetime of learning and it's a lifetime of giving back. Well, you know, and you also just a few minutes ago, I think you gave a very nice description of what a kata is. And it, it, a lot of times the way I describe it is a kata is an exercise in perfection. It's never going to be perfect, right? But it's an exercise. It gives us a standard to measure ourselves by and we're continually improving. But having said that, right, perfection is not a destination. It's a never-ending process, isn't it? And so that's what the, the true master realizes. Now, when you're talking about that in the sense of, of – uh, you know, what does a leader do once you reach a certain level? Like you said, whether you reach a, a, what might be recognized as a master's position or a title or the CEO of a company, it, it doesn't really matter. It's exactly the same. It should be exactly the same mindset. There is a point in, in your domain where you're going to have about as much skill and knowledge as you're going to acquire. You can still obviously learn some more, right? But there are some really brilliant people that for at a particular time may know just about all they need to know it and you know to to do their job well but what do you do with that in the end aren't we talking about power i mean really that's what this is all about and you know a leadership uh, a leader's uh, capital if you will is power and we have to be make sure we define that properly and that power is your ability or capacity to to perform effectively right it's not necessarily control it's not even necessarily authority Although it's it's nice when the two work uh, together to a positive end, but when we're talking about that and what we're we're trying to make ourselves more effective, how do we do that? Power only expands through sharing, right? You can't further the cause of your school, like you said. You can't bring the next generation up. You can't grow your company. And of course, you know John P. Cotter famously said it not long ago in in a business context. He said, "If you're not growing, you're dying." And I really believe that he was talking about it on a much more philosophical level than a lot of people understood. It doesn't necessarily mean that your company has to be growing bigger. It has to be developing. And the people in the company have to be developing and innovating and creating. If you're not creating new solutions, right, if you're not finding the next uh, way to fulfill a need or a desire out in the marketplace, well, then you're going to get left behind. There's, there's just no doubt about it. I think it's always been that way. But we see it at such an accelerated pace that it becomes even more crucial. So, yeah, if you want to expand power, if you want to do a better job, you want to be more effective, there's only one way. That's through sharing, by developing the people who are going to come up and, and, and take your place or help you take your talents and apply them in other areas, right? Yeah, it, it's the ability to be um, a great leader. It, it's not, you know, sure, it's about getting the the power and the influence and be able to, to move things forward and, and having an amazing network of people that you can call on. But ultimately, it's about dying in the sense, uh, in the classic sense of ending 
um, your tenure at that organization about when you step out and you no longer go into the office every day and you maybe you're an, you're an advisor that only goes to meetings every six months or once a year, what have you built and will that will what you have built continue on with the same philosophy and the same meaning that you brought to the organization? And that, I think, is a lot of leaders in uh, the world today don't have that mindset. They're so busy scrambling for profit. They're so busy scrambling to survive that they've put this aside and what they don't realize. And in the long run, that will hobble them and they will not be able to succeed in many, many, many of their endeavors because the machine that's behind them um, just isn't functioning properly or functioning outside of their philosophies. So you may have influence at the beginning, but if you don't uh, educate and hone that organization as a tool, then you're going to lose the ability to wield it effectively. If you don't share the whole thing collapses. You're exactly right. It, the mentality you describe, it's a crippling mentality. And it's crippling our society to a great deal. And the reason is there's a there's a, a research, a basis of research I cite in the book. And I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly where it came from off the top of my head. But there's uh, what, what, they, what they showed was that a lot of the resources of an organization, and I'd say any organization, whether it's a business or we see this particularly, again, I believe in politics these days, is that there is a tremendous amount of waste in the area of people protecting turf, you know, protecting their position, protecting their reputations. Now, sometimes I guess uh, some people have to spend a lot of time protecting their reputations if they're being lousy people, right? Which gets back to the importance of the human human side of all this. But even having said that, you know, uh, by and large, people forgive mistakes, right? And, and in the context of leadership and followers, followers forgive mistakes. Followers understand that, that we're people. We're leading people for one thing, not process. And leaders are people. They're not, you know, they're not uh, idols. So when we, when we think about it in that context, uh, the amount of, of resources, personal and actual material resources that are being lost to people protecting turf and protecting their reputation. Uh, actually, I believe it was a Harvard Business Review study. And they said that that is one of the most expensive costs to American business these days and business across the world. So what do we do about it? We Again, you have to train people to have that mindset of openness where uh, if they want their lives to develop and grow and expand, the only way they can do that is by bringing up the people who are going to take their place, right? You don't want to protect your turf. Uh, you want to develop people who are going to be able to do what you're doing, again, so that that frees up your energies to go and apply it elsewhere. And I think that's really critical. Enlightened companies see that in business, right? When you develop that leadership, like you said, maybe now they're coming into the office two, three times a week instead of every day. Maybe they're out developing uh, new opportunities, right? Maybe they're out leading an innovative process in an organization, um, but they're not anchored to their former position. Now, if you want to be, that's great. I'm not denigrating anyone. I keep talking about leaders on the front line. The opposite side of that is that too often some, we, we, we promote people based on productivity. And there is some merit to that. But, you know, I always think about the – I use as an example those old World War II movies, right, where they, they send out a green lieutenant to lead a platoon, gets into his first skirmish, can't handle it, right? So what happens? The old grizzled sergeant comes and saves the day. What's the first thing they want to do is promote that sergeant. And, of course, the sergeant doesn't want to be promoted. That sergeant's leadership should be cultivated at that level. And at that level, that's probably more valuable than – obviously, it was more valuable than the green lieutenant who had the authority in the position but not the experience to lead at that, at that point, right? So – we, you know, we have to look at both ends of that. And you know, I guess uh, I'm not a solutions person, Bob. It's, uh, I go in and cause more trouble, I think, than, than I solve problems because that's what we need to do. We need to look at this and, and see, you know, where are the strengths and weaknesses? Where are people doing a good job? Where do they need help? And then, of course, I, I get to leave and they get to solve the problems later. But um, – <laughs> That's what it's all about, right? To get people thinking about these things and most importantly, thinking about them on a very human level. Everything we've just been talking about is about humanity, right? We haven't talked about process at all. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the book itself. Is this a book that you can, you know, 
jump, you know, jump into and say, you know what, I'm just going to read part four and uh, the heck with the rest of the book? Or should they kind of read the, the beginning of the book to get their head around uh, the, the spirit of the black belt or, or really the essence of what you're trying to get across in the book and then they can skip around? Or is it a book that they're really going to get the most benefit if they read cover to cover? I really appreciate that question. You're the first uh, interviewer who has asked that question. Uh, ironically, I'm splitting out into a, a side project the eight tactics that I talked about, and I'm going to make that a little pocketbook. That section you could probably dive right into and, and you know get something out of, or the sections on compassion, courage, and leadership you could probably do. Um, but here's what happened, and I, I didn't really intend it to happen this way, but it became a very personal story as well. So as well as talking about leadership, I'm talking about how I discovered my capability to be a leader. And that had kind of a, a kind of a strange beginning. I mean, I usually start presentations by saying, okay, now I'm going to share my resume. I'm a two-time college dropout and a former drug abuser. Aren't you glad you booked me for this event, right? <laughs> and that's, that's where it started. That's how I got into martial arts was to try to help me uh, stay off of drugs at that point. I mean, quitting drugs is easy. Staying off drugs is very hard. I needed some process. I needed some discipline in my life or I needed to to get some sense of, of myself and my value. So martial arts filled a lot of those, those gaps for me. But, uh, you know, the, the idea – well, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. There's still a debate in leadership, and I don't know why because every time I ask this in a room, you know, we get a consensus. But there's that idea in people's minds that some people are gifted to be leaders, that they are natural leaders. Yet if you ask him point blank, are leaders born or made, everybody's going to say leaders are made. And I'll go a little further. I'll say, no, most leaders are, are, are transformed. And that's what happened to me. So I think that understanding where I was coming from and how I learned to transform myself from that position. And the reason I share that story, uh, there's a couple of reasons. Obviously, transformation is a huge part of, of the leadership philosophy I'm sharing. Uh, I believe a, a, the most effective leaders are constantly engaged in that process we talked about earlier. Uh, but uh, the other thing is that I can truly stand up in front of people and from the heart say or express myself through the book from the heart and say, if I can do it, you can do it. If I came from where I did right, and was able to discover some way to, to transform into somebody useful – uh, I don't, I don't entertain too many uh, excuses when people say they, they're unable to do that. But again, let's separate that from where they want to go as far as, uh, you know, their their title, their position of authority. You know, do they want to be pro? If you're happy, uh, flipping burgers, great. But we're going to talk about how to be a leader when you're on the on the grill line. You know, and how you're going to be an example to the people around you. How you're going to be an example for your family. How you're going to participate in your community. So, uh, you know. That's the, the emphasis in, in business is only because I see that that's where a lot of people are really doing the most remarkable things. I mean, that's, you know, in, our, in the society that we live in, uh, let's face it, we're, we're founded, right, on our entrepreneurial energies and on our ability to, to create solutions and market them. So that's, that's really why I focus more on business than on community leadership. It's, it's interesting because, you know, this is coming up again and again. Um, uh, transformation and and self awareness and being conscious of uh, the people around you and the and and that's really what leadership is and a lot of that is um, it's a little more more on the eastern uh, side of philosophy compared to uh, the western side of philosophy which is all about me 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 I am the center everybody gather around me whereas. What you're saying is that, yes, you can be a leader, but to be a great leader, you have to step away from that role and say, okay, what would a great leader do in this position? All the way down to like, if you can instill that everybody in your organization is a leader, it's an organization of leaders, then you have an incredibly powerful organization because then everybody's responsible for themselves. I mean, and I've talked about this several times in different books, and really the the essence of it is if you're walking around with the CEO and you're in the shop and he's walking around, oh yeah, there's this piece of equipment, that piece of equipment, you have this capability. Oh, hang on a second. The guy goes and picks up a piece of scrap and puts it in a, in a bin where it's supposed to be. Or he, he picks up a tool and puts it away as he's talking with you, but doesn't acknowledge that he's doing that. It's just part of the flow, almost like the kata of how he presents and how he is. 
uh, those are great leaders because they're showing uh, showing the people around them that he is humble enough to do their job, and by doing their job, he's admonishing them, saying, "Why aren't you being a leader with your your work bench here? Why aren't you being a leader with the space that you work in? Well, you know, if you were a leader, there would be no scrap on the floor because that's <laughs> what a great leader would do. You're conscious of your environment, and I think that's what the book brings to a lot of the readers is getting that." very subtle but incredibly important mindset about what a leader is. Again, I appreciate that uh, line of discussion because, you know, and these are not new ideas. I mean, a couple of thousand years ago, right? Uh, Lao Tzu, uh, I'm sorry, Sun Tzu, the, the author of The Art of War, wrote, you cannot lead by force, you lead by example. And of course, that's been echoed, you know, many, many times through, through different philosophies. Um, the idea of that, you know, well, the, the the contemporary, I think, application of that is what people might call servant leadership. But one of those strategies is never limit yourself to one leadership style, right? Uh, there's many to choose from. And like you said, there are many great examples for leadership that we can look at. And we have more access to this than ever before. Uh, there's no excuse for people not to learn about leaders as well as about the process of leadership. And then you can apply what what fits in that situation. But you can only do that when you're constantly learning and, and exposing yourself to different styles and different ideas. Now, the example of that uh, – I'm sorry, the, the metaphor you used about leading by example, though, that's the, found, that's the bedrock of everything we're talking about. Uh, I remember years ago – uh, someone, I was running an instructor's program. I had, I think, five martial arts centers at the time, and we would train the instructors every month, but about twice a year we had leadership college where we really got together and, and did a deep dive. And one of the instructors brought up, uh, he said, I'm having trouble with people not bowing. And he said, you know what's weird? He said, I, I don't think I've ever heard you tell anybody they have to bow, but everyone always bows to you. And I said, well, I tell the kids, right, <laughs> because we have, to, <laughs> we have to do that. But I said, no, I don't think I've ever told an adult student they should bow to me. And I certainly never told anyone they should call me sensei or master. And he said, well, then how come they do? And I said, well, it's really simple. I said, when I meet somebody in the, in the dojo for the first time, they don't know what all the protocols are, but I bow to them. After a while, when I bow to them enough times, they start bowing to me, right? It doesn't need to be said. Uh, the idea, you know, some people, again, are so attached in leadership with titles and, and, and positions. Uh, really strange phenomena started happening. Uh, I never asked anyone to, to call me master, and I was very uncomfortable with that. Uh, and finally, I realized that what was happening was, was when I was teaching people that were under me, you know, they bought into the tradition and called me sensei, and, and you know, that was cool. It was a, it was a, I always considered that an honor. After I started to promote people to my level, and in our system, uh, I'll promote people beyond my level, you know, as far as martial arts skill goes. If they deserve it, they should be there. Why should I be the top martial arts guy just because I started the organization or because I'm the administrator, right? So at any rate, when that started happening, those are the students that started calling me master. And again, I never asked for it. But I, I, I realized what a special phenomenon that was and what an interesting dynamic it was. When you, when you help others you know, surpass your skills, when you help others excel or exceed you, then they recognize that contribution you have in, in their lives, you see. And that's organic. And I think more leaders could profit by understanding that, especially in business. And you, you gave a great example, you know. How many times would someone walk through and just say, this needs to be cleaned up, which is sometimes appropriate, don't get me wrong. But that person that does it themselves, leading by example, is it, that's such a powerful imprint. Anyone can manage, and maybe that's the split, right? You can manage through force and, and fear and coercion, but then you're a dictator, not a leader. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a classic conundrum because some people need to be managed and some people need to be basically beaten 
beaten forward and maybe <laughs> maybe those are the type maybe they're in the wrong organization because they don't harmonize with the philosophy right. of the organization and hey you know that's how the army works so they come they basically they break you down to your core they basically strip your your personality down to nothing and then they build you back up because that's the most efficient way to get the most people uh, to respect the person that says point the gun in that direction and don't goof around with it. You cannot have people come off a bus and give them a bunch of weapons and say, okay, now we're going to learn how to use these things. No, you got to strip them down and understand what authority is, and that's what boot camp's all about. And I've actually, with some organizations, recommended, uh, usually organizations that have problems with um, uh, internal uh, in, internal theft and things like that, and says, well, instead of firing people, create a boot camp and send them to the boot camp. And the people that aren't really corrupt but have been following the corrupt people because that's the that's the environment they're putting in, and people will mimic an environment they're put into, they will rise to the top and then you bring them back in the organization and they'll be fantastic. And the people that are corrupt are usually lazy and will not survive boot camp and will fl- you know flee or quit or yell at you or walk away. And that solves the problem. You just don't, you need to have that in your organization for and not forever, just until you get everybody cleaned out and then you don't need to have it anymore. Nine times out of ten, they do keep it because it's a great training, just like going to a dojo. It's all about stripping away all the stuff and being conscious of it. And and that's why I love when kids um, are brought into martial arts at a, at, a, at a relatively young age, not too young, but at a relatively young age, because they sure they learn how to fall over and not hurt themselves and, and do this stuff, but they learn respect and they also learn th- that they can break through their mental barriers. And that's the biggest learning I got uh, when I was in martial arts is that my brain would be saying, you can't do this. And my senses would be saying, you're going to do this. And then I would <laughs> right. do yeah. it. Failure is not an option. right? <laughs> exactly. But then I would have my aha moment, which would basically be like, wow, uh, I did do that, so maybe my brain isn't on my side, and maybe I should be able to push my brain, which is basically being able to push myself. And I think that's a lot of failings. What most people is they have to get to that point. I mean, some people are born that way, but a lot of people aren't, and they have to understand that you can't second guess yourself. You say, "Ah, I don't want to go hiking because it's hard, and they're spending the whole hike with this conversation in their head. And of course, they're not enjoying the hike because they've got all this garbage that they're talking about in their head and this naysaying. And if they're never going to be able to keep up with people and it's, they're just going to prove their point for failure. You, you hit on a, a lot of things there. And one of them was the, the, the point that I would argue there, no, I don't believe anyone is born with those qualities. Sometimes they're born into favorable circumstances, right? A supportive family uh, or on the opposite side could be a, a destructive family or you know negative influences. But no, no, that all these things can be learned. And, and you said it, and I said failure is not an option. And I mean by that ultimate failure, right? It's, success is created out of failures. And you said it very, very nicely in a dojo is a very safe setting where you can expand your talents and abilities. How? By facing challenges, by doing things that are difficult, by failing a lot, right? And correcting those failures and moving forward. You also talked about, you know, the idea of the military thing. And what's interesting, and I've, I've done a lot of research, especially with the uh, Marine schools of leadership. And face it, they're amongst the toughest. <laughs> and yet they're never breaking the person. What they're doing, just like in the dojo, is causing that person to offload the negative aspects of ego, right? You want that person to be strong. Now, it will separate, though, and that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. Yes, if we're sending people to combat, those that can't make it need to wash out. But they also work very hard to take someone who may be weak in some areas but has potential and, and build on those, right? And, it, and that's, what it's, that's what it's all about. It's breaking the, the negative aspects of ego so that you can cooperate and work with other people as well. But never losing that sense. And, and like I said, I, I love the Marine imprint because every Marine has to be able to step up and take the next job in line at any given time. They're not training, they're not training soldiers. They're training leaders in the classic sense. Every person on that line learns to be a leader. And part of being a leader is being a great follower, right? Being a great leader involves being a great follower. So yeah, no, I, again, I think we're, we're singing in perfect harmony, but it's amazing. Uh, and again, where I think we're at that intersection where, you know, how important are these human aspects of leadership that we, that we keep talking about? 
you know, when when I ask, it's very typical if I'm working with a C-suite group or an executive group, I'll ask them, how important are these human ideas that we're talking about? And of course, they say it's everything, right? Everything. The attitude is everything. The mindset is everything. And yet when I ask them, how much are they investing directly, right, in the development of this mindset, sometimes I find that I'm the first uh, person that they've hired to even talk about it, right? Uh, other times I'll find that, no, there is no direct investment there. There's direct investment in the, in the uh, technical aspects of management. And again, we're, we're back to that split again, right? And, and management is important. Don't get me wrong. It's very, very important. And some people are great managers that are not great leaders. It's nice when the two live together again. Uh, all great leaders don't make great managers either. So when we can you know, provide that, that crossover, but I think particularly if we can help managers become better leaders, uh, then they're going to be more, more effective in the management positions as well. Well, also, it's it's being a different organizations need different type of leaders. Uh, they need either growth leaders or they need uh, a cutback leader, whatever. And and I think this is the great unwashed masses that look from our our humble position to these people that are way up there and getting all this money. And we say, wow, how come he's getting so much money? And uh, because his job is to do the impossible, is basically go into an organization that he has really no, he may have relationships, but he really doesn't have uh, uh, an internal relationship with anybody there and evolve it in a specific angle and strategy. That's it. That's all his options because he's being hired. He said, Joe, we need you to do X and we need you to do it well and we need it done in 18 months. Go. That's a incredibly challenging, difficult position to be in. And then when they accomplish that, their reward is, oh, now you're fired because we don't need you anymore. We're going to bring in a different type of leader because we need a different type of leader. And then he has to sit and wait for another opportunity while well, he'll go and he'll network and he'll build and whatever, but he still has to wait until the next opportunity comes along and then does the same thing again and again. Very disciplined. That's okay, though, because the, right, the great leaders that way always know where they're going next. You know, oh, they, yeah. At least they know that the opportunity is there. But you hit something so important there. And here's the breakdown of, uh, of political leadership, I believe, in, in, our, in our culture right now. And I've been on a soapbox about the recent happenings in Baltimore, right, where we have this continual raft of, of elected leaders – people who were chosen for these positions, standing up, pounding the podium, saying something must be done. And I, I wrote a couple of articles about that. I said, well, yeah, it, that's what you were chosen to do, right? Exactly. Do something. So in those areas, and this speaks to, again to that idea of leadership at all levels, I'm much more impressed when I see, and let's take that, let's take the idea, let's take the worst case scenario, these highly impoverished areas. Uh, education system has failed in, in those particular areas. You know, all the infrastructure is in a state of decay. And yet somewhere, someplace, and I, there was a poignant example uh, where food deserts were being created in some of these urban areas, right? Retailers couldn't operate in these areas properly anymore, so they left, right? And that left a big void. Again, we saw leaders stand up and thump their fists on the podium and say something must be done. But then we also saw some people on the, on the grassroots level getting people to work together, cooperating, creating a food co-op, right? So that they could then purchase, you know, they found places to operate that were inexpensive. They found sponsors to help them out and they solved the problem, you see, right there on the ground. And that's what we have to continually remember because I think one of the greatest, maybe the greatest problem we have in leadership today in any area of life is this, this vestigial idea that only leaders, in quotation marks, can lead, right? It's not a matter of position. I probably said this a dozen times. I've had a lot of concussions too, so I say things over and over. <laughs> but it's, it's not position, title, authority, or rank, right? It, it's, it's what you're willing to do. A leader is someone who's, who asks before they're asked, who sees something that needs to be done and goes and does it, who can follow, right? And who walks the walk, not just talk the talk. So that, and that's what we, we see, I think, the, the great void in political leadership. It, it goes to that, and it also goes back to that idea we talked about earlier, that politically uh, our system has become so adversarial that they're locked in a constant turf battle, right? How many times do you see, let's take the, the, the two major parties in America, one will have an idea, the other party's against it. 
until the power structure flips, right? The second party comes up with the same idea the opposition had before, but now it's theirs and they're on opposite sides of the fight, right? With the same idea. And again, that's caused by that that turf battle mentality and that that idea. They don't realize that great leadership is always sharing. Great to have opposition uh, oppositional points of view. I think that's terrific. That's that's uh, that's the cauldron for innovation. But there has to be an intersection where people are willing to sit down and say Maybe I don't agree with you. Maybe I can't even stand you. <laughs> but here's what we can do together. And maybe here's what we shouldn't even be messing around with, right? And that works in politics as well as business. How many times have business leaders, uh, you know, you might get a great idea, but the leaders on your front lines might say, hey, you know what? We see some problems with that. How much more powerful is it when you're open, right? You've got open lines of communication when you're dealing with people as people and they're able to give you honest feedback and you say, hey, yeah, you know what? Having considered your point of view, maybe we need to go in a different direction. Yeah, it's, all, it's you know, and you bring it up again and again is the ego. Um, you can't have an ego-driven leader <laughs> even though uh, most people that uh, aspire for leadership are 90% of the time driven by ego um, and that at one point in their career they have to say okay that that's got me so far but now I have to step away from it and grow to become a better leader and uh, there's just not enough books out there that talk on that level. Oh but you don't get that from books though too right I mean I think what you're talking about there's that idea there's a healthy idea of ego right mm -hmm. I mean the connotation these days is is usually negative uh but I think the healthy the productive ego sure we want our leaders to be confident right we want them to be strong that that's and we want them to be courageous those are the positive aspects of of ego and we want them to be very driven i mean i think the greatest leaders are are very self-motivated and very self-driven uh and i also believe the least selfish thing you can do for others is to constantly improve yourself you make yourself a more valuable resource to others that way but the negative aspects of ego yes when it crosses the line and it becomes arrogance right when it becomes uh when you become dictatorial when you have to lead, you know, I, sh I should have specified my, my fun, uh, fundamental definition of leadership is very simple. One who has the ability to attract willing followers, emphasis on the willing, everything else is likely to fall into the idea of, of uh, a dictatorship. And, you know, that's, that's where the egomaniacs really thrive, right? But an egomaniac can only, can only maintain power and authority through force, fear, and coercion. I mean, that, I can't find a, in a been studying this for a while now. I can't find an exception to that rule. I don't know if, if you're aware of any, right? The dictator at some point always has to maintain the position with, with fear, force, or coercion. Uh, cannot do it through inspiration, persuasion, uh, influence, as you, you, know, you, you talked about before, which is you know, a huge, huge idea in academic leadership, right? Uh, there are a lot of great thinkers that believe that that's really the most important aspect of leadership is your ability to influence others, right? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the difference between a great leader and, and a, um, a dictator basically is a dictator surrounded by yes people that would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And, Safer that way, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but it's it's just like a self-fulfilling thing is if, if you're, if you're, functioning in a delusional atmosphere and you be, and all the people that you bring and you trust uh, are basically lying to you because they have no respect for you. They're just saying, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll agree with whatever you say because you're paying me to do that. Instead of somebody will say, hey, why are you doing that? Why can't we make this better? And challenging, if you take the challenge out of the, uh, the equation, you're never growing. Right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, part three, strategies and tactics. Now, you've got the eight strategies uh, of the sensei leader. Can a leader work towards getting all of these uh, strategies in place or in, in any particular order, or should they kind of start with number one, which builds to number two, which builds to number three? You know, you, you really are asking wonderful questions. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I don't even know how I came up with that order, to be honest with you. The only one, the only part of that that really had any... Uh, I guess logical sequencing as far as importance went, was seven and eight. Be a dedicated teacher, coach, and mentor, and lead by, lead by sharing, not accumulating. I put those last only because we tend to remember what we hear last, right? Um, 
as far as importance goes, maybe I'd say those are the, the most important, but you can see that all the others just kind of fit into that, right? Um, they're different aspects. So no, uh, the other side of it is, hey, you know, in one lifetime, uh, try to be a, a, you know, a jack-of-all-trades, master of one or two. There are people that are very good with certain aspects of this, right? And that's their strength. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. They want to have some articulation in the other areas, uh, but they may not be you know, masters in every one of them. Communication is, is a great example. There are some very effective leaders who are not very skilled communicators. I've also noticed, though, that those who are in that position are constantly working to improve their communication skills. And, and hey, that's all you can ask of a person. On the other hand, there are also people who are very willing to say, hey, you know what, maybe I'm not the most articulate person. Maybe I have the vision, but I don't have the voice. And they bring in people who can express it better than they can, right? Um, I, I think, you know, it's interesting because we hear so, so much from him now, but uh, Warren Buffett, I think, was somebody like that, you know, who was more of a quiet leader for a, for a lot of his career. And then, then his role shifted. And of course, he's, he's very articulate and interesting to listen to. Um, I'm trying to think of another example. Uh, Jack Canfield is another person like that and found an expression through, through his writing. So, you know, there are certainly people like Mother Teresa is another good example. You know, she didn't set out to be on platforms, but she's an icon, right, as far as effective leadership goes. So, no, it doesn't matter what order um, you learn them in. I think the, the most essential parts of that are the, the – you know, and I should tell you how we came up with this. For years, I would uh, ask the kids in my leadership program at the Martial Arts Center, uh, these were developing instructors, I said, what qualities do you want to see in leaders? And I always limited them to three just because I think we can really focus when we do that. And we helped them a little with the semantics, but really they evolved the three words com courage, compassion, and wisdom, which I later found out, in fact, only when I was doing the research for the Sensei Leader did I find this out that uh, Confucius actually considered those the three essential qualities of a decent person, right? So that, that idea that courage, compassion, and wisdom, we have to visit those. We have to understand exactly what they mean. We have to understand how they, they fit in the context of your responsibility as a leader. And you have to be able to commit – you have to commit yourself to developing those three qualities continually. That, I believe, is essential. Now, in uh, getting to meet some, some really neat minds in leadership uh, over the last few years, I've, I always ask these folks, especially the academics, I said, you know, I tell them the same story I just told you. I say, hey, how'd my kids do? And without exception, they all say, wonderful. You know, we can make that list a little longer if we want to, but it's hard to reduce it any further, you know. So that was very gratifying. In the back of the book, you've got this uh, section called uh, Essential Conditions, and uh, I want you to talk on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, that's about as deep as I'll get into process, I guess, and because – and I'm, I'm going to be quite open about this. I never ran a big company. I think the, the most employees I ever had was somewhere in the neighborhood of five. Uh, so when I'm working with – especially in, in, in large corporations – I feel a responsibility to say that, to say, you know, I don't know your world the way you do. Uh, a big organization is a complex entity. Now, we can break it down at any given area. You still have to be able to relate person to person. So I, that, that's important. Of course, if they didn't believe that, I, w I wouldn't be working with them. Um, but as far as process goes, there are certain conditions that you have to, you have to pay attention to if this is going to work. And all those conditions still speak back to the humanity that we've continually talked about. That, for instance, uh, one of the conditions is that you have to have open and transparent lines of communication between each level, right? And particularly between the people. Uh, I, I'm challenged on that sometimes because, uh, you know, if you're running an operation, let's say you're the CEO of a company with 10,000 people or more, well, you're certainly not going to know what's going on, right, with every person in that organization. But you can create a culture where everyone has direct access, right, and intimate contact with their supervisor. And that's very well documented. Gallup did a lot of research in that area. We know what people want from their leaders. We know exactly what they want from their leaders, and that's one of the most important things, that personal interaction, so that they know they can go to, to somebody and they know their voice will be heard. So the, the technical side, the process is, yes, you have, to, you have to create the conditions where those 
lines exist where people can express themselves openly and honestly up and down the, the, uh, the hierarchy. And when that is threatened, it, you have a provision to make sure that it's corrected, right? If, if a whistleblower is treated poorly, for example, you know, if someone has issues and they're not being heard, there has to be some process where that, you know, that's going to be uh, accounted for. Otherwise, again, you, you, you just forget it. You can't go to, you go to sensei leader workshops for the rest of your life. It's not going to work, <laughs> um, right? But that's the idea. But by and large, it's interesting. When people focus on the human side – the process side is, is, is somewhat simple, right? Not easy all the time, but uh, very, very simple. Uh, it's logical. The human side is the most difficult because, let, let's face it, we're, we're tremendously interesting creatures, but we're really complex. And, uh, and we've got the two, uh, the two wild cards, I think, that, that probably give us – maybe this is why we're a puzzle in the universe. We have feelings and beliefs. And our feelings and beliefs are very, very different from one to the other, right? Uh, even sometimes when they look the same, right? That, that's our individual human experience. And that's what's complex. And heck, I can't argue your feelings and beliefs. Those are yours, right? We can, we can debate the process. So that's why that does become important at some point. Um, but the feelings and the beliefs and how we express these ideas is, is highly individual. So we always have to be open to what the, right, what the other person's experience is. And we have to be very open and aware of what our our own experience is and willing to analyze that if we're going to learn and grow. So where should people go if they, you know, if they've read the book and they want to learn more? Is there a website they should go to? Yeah, uh, that black belt guy is a good place to start because that gives, gives an intersection to our different sites. Uh, the senseileader.com is where I put uh, the, the blog related to this and, I, and I'm very active on LinkedIn. And then, you know, I, I don't, obviously I don't want to be self-promotional, but um, the, the best way to learn these ideas is to invite me and let's let's uh, come and talk about these. I, I don't give a lecture. Uh, you know, there's certain things that I like to, to offer as a foundation, but uh, my workshops are very interactive. I want people to discuss these ideas, kick them around, tell me what, what's going to work for them and tell me what isn't. And we'll, you know, through those challenges, we'll figure it out. We'll figure out, uh, you know, what people need to need to be doing. Um, but I, again, I'm not there to, to solve problems. I'm there to cause them. And then we'll, uh, then we'll try to deal with them on that level, right? I've been chatting with Jim, my favorite new black belt, and uh, his book, <laughs> the, Sen <laughs> uh, the Sensei Leader, Effective Leadership Through Courage, Compassion, and Wisdom. And before we go, I'm just going to read a little quote from this book. I think it's very apropos. A leader is best when people barely know he exists, but when his work is done, his aim fulfilled they will say, we did it ourselves. Wasn't Lao Tzu a very smart guy? I, I can't claim that one <laughs> as much as I'd like to. This, the book is full of great gems like that, and, and it's, a, it's a lot of fun. And like all black belts uh, that get what it's all about, they're always very, very happy, and they laugh a lot, and you definitely proved that point. So thanks for being on the show, Jim. Well, Bob, thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.